All right, well, if you want to open up to Revelation 13, kind of did a really quite a long intro last week. You know, as we try and just teach through the scripture, you know, chapter by chapter, just trusting that the Lord knows, you know, what we need to hear and that we don't want to skip anything because we could end up putting our own emphasis on things. And one thing that I didn't think about at all in terms of Revelation is how helpful it would be just in terms of seeing some of the broader themes throughout the whole Bible and bringing those out that really come up um, regularly in Revelation, which really makes sense if you think about it because it's got all these images and it's drawing so heavily on the Old Testament that it really kind of gives a good overview and a kind of a good background for reading the Bible and seeing some of the themes that run all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. Since it's such a small group, I think I'll just add to the anyone's discomfort by asking you for feedback. <laughs> See if you remember <laughs> uh, anything from last week. So we started out last week um, reading just a few verses in Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2. I'll read those now, and then I'm going to quiz you here. I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like the bear, like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon... It gave power, his power, and a throne and great authority. Okay, so we read that, and we kind of just basically did overview from, like, Old Testament. This is clearly an Old Testament allusion to Daniel chapter 7, where we see all these same beasts and how they're described as these different kingdoms. Um, Their prophecy, actually, at that time, they they hadn't come yet. Um, And... Now we're seeing these beasts kind of all put into one kind of um, final beast, which is Rome. And that was the first kind of clue that we're talking about something political here, kingdoms, because the readers at the time, the New Testament readers, especially those who have a background in the Old Testament, familiar with the Old Testament, would immediately think of this Daniel passage and think of, oh, this and Daniel was talking about these different kingdoms, and here it's being brought up again. So that was the first clue that it's going to be talking about something political, kind of a political ruler here is is the is this beast. But we also talked about another thing um, that we don't often think about that kind of goes throughout the whole Bible, which is the word Messiah or Christ, and how that, throughout the whole Bible, but especially in the book of Revelation, would make us think of kind of a kingdom idea. Okay, so here's where the quiz comes in. Um, does anybody remember what the word Messiah means or what it was pointing to in the Old Testament that we talked about last week? Anointed. Right, anointed. Yes, 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 all, all both of those. So it literally just means anointed. They took the word. Sometimes when they translate the New Testament, they'll just literally take a word out of the original language and just drop it into our language, English. So like the word baptize is literally a Greek word, baptizo, and the word o, or the ending o means like, it's a, it's a verb ending basically. It means, you know, basically immerse. Um, the verb for immerse. And they just took that right and put it in English. And the same with the word Christ. Um, Christos is a Greek word, and they just took it put it right in English. So it's helpful to know when you come across words like that, what is it actually saying? You know, what is the what does this word mean? And we talked about how it means anointed, and specifically we looked at a bunch of different texts from the Old Testament where there was two main people, types of people that were anointed in the Old Testament, kings and priests. But almost all of the messianic prophecies were kingly prophecies. And we looked at a bunch of those. And the reason I wanted to do that was as we see these contrasting images of the Christ and the Antichrist, Again, the word Antichrist isn't used in the book of Revelation, but the concept is definitely there. Um, You have to know what Christ means and Christ is and who they were looking for and what the Christ is to see the negative reflection, the foil, 
you know, the, the villain and the hero and see the differences there. And so we looked at the word Christ, and that was another clue that um, just throughout the book of Revelation that we're going to be thinking of kingdoms because Jesus is bringing in a kingdom. Even the word gospel, we looked at this, the word gospel was this political word in the Greek. When there would be a victory, they would bring in the good news. Or We, we talked about how there's the good news of the kingdom was something people would say when someone took over, literally a, a hostile takeover. But now we use that when we hear it, we think about Jesus. Well, Jesus is bringing in a kingdom. And in one way, there is a hostile takeover. <laughs> He's going to defeat sin and Satan and death. And that's good news. And so when, we, when you see Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name, that's a title. And think, what I want you to think, especially in the book of Revelation, is King Jesus. King Jesus. And we looked at a bunch of passages and how I feel like it really helps us to connect these things to see why is John saying what he's going to say next. And you see dominion and glory and honor and power. Those are all things that they would say for a ruler, right? That's all background to lead us in so this the rest of this chapter doesn't seem shocking. And I'm going to read you a verse from a different section. And I think the way I'm going to do it today is just go verse by verse because otherwise I think it's going to get bogged down um, because there's so many little details here. But first I want to read you a verse that kind of connects all these things that I was thinking about from Acts that really enforces this idea that as American evangelicals, we don't think at least I don't, think about the kingdom and the kingliness of Jesus as much as it comes up in the Bible. And it's a, it, once you start seeing it, it comes up all over the place. I'm going to read you a verse here from Acts that kind of gives you this feeling. Okay, this, um, this is in the midst of kind of some controversy going on in, uh, where many people are turning to be Christians and, and it's causing some turmoil in, these, in, in cities. And so here, listen to this. Um, this is what the opponents of Christianity are saying, kind of accusing Christians. This is, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. It's Acts 17, 6 and 7. This is what they said about Christians. These men who have turned the world upside down and they have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying that there is another king, Jesus. Think about that. Here's this summary that we have of what the Christians were saying and doing. They've turned the world upside down. They're acting against Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And they're saying there's another king, Jesus. Think about that. This is a recording of what the Christians were saying in the early church. And I don't think this was just um, them twisting what they were saying and just to accuse them. There really is another king, right? We just sang about it. King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings. And so, is that something that you would ever think to say? King Jesus. There's actually another king, king of kings, Jesus. And so, that's all background. um, And I think that's going to help us as we go through. I'm just going to give a caveat. Um... This particular section, there's a lot of questions, so I'm going to try and deal with maybe more particular than I have in the past, like, okay, what does this represent or what it could it possibly represent, and then kind of tie it all up at the end, because this is a chapter that comes up. Many people ask about this chapter in terms of what's going on in Revelation. So we'll go verse by verse. We already read uh, verses 1 and 2, and we basically spent last week just talking about how the, the beast is basically representing Rome, and the reason there's all these different... Uh, other beasts put together is those beasts were from Daniel chapter 7 and that Rome is an amalgamation of all those old kingdoms and it kind of ate them all up. Um, And so the beast is at this time Rome. And then jumping into verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So I'm going to give you some just a little bit of what I think is going on in each one of these verses. And then again, I'm going to tie it in like in a big picture towards the end. Okay, so one of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound. It seems like Nero is the one that they're referencing here, and we'll go through the this whole section and talk about why, and it'll become more and more clear as we go on, especially towards the end. 
But I'm just going to tell you, it seems like the beast, particularly talking about it in the first century, is Nero. Though it's not just talking about that. Okay, we're going to apply it in a broader sense towards the end. So this is the first century context, then we'll, we'll spread it out towards the end. But Nero, he died in 68. Um, but many in the first century believed that Nero remained alive. Uh, there are several books uh, from the first century, and I'm going to lean heavily on them, like uh, kind of Roman history that we have still surviving today. Uh, hold on just a second. I'm going to be right back. I'm just going to show you the book. going to bring these up, just if you're interested. Tacitus uh, comes up a lot, and Suetonius also comes up a lot. They're um, kind of interesting. Just we've got Roman history that we is still available to us. Uh, it's not all like perfectly accurate. There's some, you know, discrepancies between different historians. But anyways, Tacitus, uh, who wrote about the emperors, talks about how a false Nero arose shortly after Nero's death. So Nero was obviously the emperor of Rome at the time, and there was this other person that looked like Nero that came and was saying, like, I'm basically Nero reincarnated. Um, And so this mortal wound that was healed, one possible uh, interpretation is that this rumor going around that Nero is going to basically be resurrected. And this actually happened several times. So the first, a false Nero arose shortly after Nero's death. Then another arose during the emperor um, Titus, another false Nero that said he was Nero resurrected. And then a third time (laughs) during the emperor Domitian. Uh, This time, uh, this false Nero or quote-unquote Nero resurrected threatened the empire and had convinced the Parthians, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, to um, basically help him with an army. (laughs) So it was actually threatening the Roman Empire. So this happened three times in history. Um, and then actually even some Jewish writings, like non-canonical, non-inspired, uh, not scripture, but like other Jewish people that said they were prophesying, actually prophesied that Nero would return, which is kind of interesting, kind of strange really. But it kind of gives you a feel for what was going on at the time in the air, is that people believed that Nero was going to come back. And so I think that's what this, this is talking about. In terms of application, I want you to notice the word that they followed the beast and they marveled. Again, all this is a contrast to what we're going to talk about in 14. Who are we actually supposed to be following? Jesus, right? That the same language that gets used for us towards Christ is the language that is used towards the beast, towards the emperor. Follow him, marvel, worship, all these things are going to come up. Okay? If you want to interrupt at any point and ask a question... Do because this is kind of a this is kind of a different message, but I'm we're just working through it. Verse four now, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, "Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it?" So again, I want you to notice here a contrast to Jesus. They're worshiping; they're not worshiping the King of Kings; they're worshiping the Emperor, and that actually literally happened. Um, Rome and Nero were both very prideful and other emperors as well, demanding worship. They demanded worship. I'm going to give you just one story. There's so many I could tell you, but I'm just going to give you one that kind of gives you a feeling for this. Okay? There's a story. uh, This one is in Suetonius, one one of the ones I was telling you about, histories. There was a Gaelic revolt, so that's like... Um, Europe area, uh, I think like Germany around in that area, if I, if I got it right. There was a Gaelic revolt, um, and they were kind of fighting the empire, and Nero did nothing about it at all until he received an insult letter, and then he got really upset. So he, he doesn't really even care that part of the empire is in this war until they send him an insulting letter. And this is what Suetonius reports. Once he was insulted, he went to the Senate to urge them to avenge Rome, so to send armies. And then he, quote, repeatedly would corner people and demand, did they know of anyone who ranked as equal? So think about that. We have an account passed all the way down <laughs> 2,000 years later, you know, uh, not quite. Um, we're, we're getting close, uh, just 2068, I guess. Of him getting insulted from a large distance away 
and cornering people. Do you know of anyone that's my equal? That's crazy. But that shows you kind of the feeling and the, um, the character of these emperors. Uh, not only, I can give you, there's so many stories like this of them putting up statues in themselves and, the, and, and demanding worship and all these things. And so this is kind of the character of what's going on. And so who is like the beast and who can fight against it? That is just almost literally the kind of things they would say. Um, jumping into verse 5 here. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Okay. Haughty, I'm going to focus in on haughty and blasphemous words. The Rome, as you can already see from all the things we've already talked about, was saying many, many things that were just anti-God. Right? That Caesar is Lord. Think about that. Just just that Caesar is Lord. Um, and specifically during the time of Nero, Christians were blamed for this fire that happened in Rome. And they blamed Christians and that Christians were up to no good and all these things like that. Even to the point uh, where Christians were nailed to crosses um, and smeared with tar and lit on fire and Nero used them as torches, these people burning, which he thought was a punishment fitting for their crime. They lit up his flower gardens during a public party where Nero dressed up as a charioteer and welcomed guests. So this kind of gives you a feeling for what's going on. Just the things that were being said against Christians, the things that were being done to Christians, and haughty, for sure, um, and definitely blasphemous. Um, this relates to verse 6. Let's read that as well. It opened its mouth and uttered blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So, that's including Christians, but God himself. So many ways um, the emperor demanded what was rightfully only given to God, right? One of the names for the emperor was princeps, which just means the first. And it meant the first in turning in meaning of the ruler. But who is the first? Well, think about, remember back in Revelation 3? Christ is literally called the first and the ruler of God's creation. Christ is actually the first. It's not... Em- it's not Nero. It's not the emperor that's first. It's Jesus. He's the king of kings. You can even see in just what we read in Acts that this was offensive to people to hear about another king, Jesus. Right? I want you to notice something encouraging, though, about these verses. It says he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. We kind of actually talked about this period of 42 months, like three and a half years earlier. And the main thrust, and I'm not going to go over it all again, but basically the main thrust is that it's a limited time. It's a limited time. It's going to end. It's a short time. Time, time, and half times, they say. Three three years. Year, a year. Uh, three, year, three and a half years. So, it's a limited time, and the word allowed there. It was given authority or allowed to exercise authority who is actually in control god god is letting this beast loose for just for a time it's a limited time and it's going to be cut off in terms of them blaspheming the dwelling or um, we know that one emperor had claimed to be god actually several of them but one claimed to be god and tried to set up his image in the temple uh, in jerusalem the literal temple and then, as well as Titus, uh, the emperor Titus later on, presided over the burning and desecration of the temple. Although that's the literal temple, you can also apply it to the figurative temple, like we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and those burning Christians, lighting Nero's parties, were the temple of God, right? And you can feel, even just in that story that I told you, the mocking nature of it, that here's these people dying, to light the party, and he's dressing up like in a costume of a charioteer. That really gives you kind of a feeling. It's like a Halloween party type of thing. It's just blasphemous and haughty, right? Uh, 
Okay, we're going to basically rehash all these same points that we just talked about in verse 7 through 10. I'll just read those here to you, 13, 7 to 10. It was also allowed, notice God's in control, it was, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and was given authority, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to ta- captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, he, with a sword he must be slain. Here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Okay. All these, notice again the contrast between Caesar and Jesus. It says he's going to receive worship from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, but only for a time, right? It was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. Allowed. But there were some who didn't worship, right? It says only those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, all these titles that we already talked about that should be to Jesus, the worship of Jesus, um, that's rightly given to God, is is being given to Caesar, to the emperor. So many of the titles in Revelation that we apply to Jesus were applied to Caesar, Almighty. Uh, there's a word, Ponto Krator. It means ruler of all. Uh, it's a Greek term, ruler of all. It's applied to Caesar on coins, but in Revelation it's applied to Christ. Christ is the actual ruler of all. And you kind of see that same kind of idea here um, that Caesar is given all this power, but the verses are very clear that it's only allowed. God is in control only for a certain time. Not only that, it says that he was allowed to conquer the saints. And I think that's talking about persecution. God knew that Rome was going to persecute Christians, and he allowed it. That there, Just these verses here. If anyone is to be taken captive, to, ca- to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. God allows martyrs. That's good news though, right? Wouldn't it be worse to say if it said there's martyrs but God just couldn't quite get it stopped. right? This is saying that God's in control. And though it's tragic and sad, for them it's not a tragedy, right? It's the moment of death and life with Christ. There was actually a tradition, a legal tradition of having Christians executed for not worshiping the emperor's statue. So this happened. Uh, there was a lot of persecution. Some Christians died in uh, coliseums. Some Christians died in executions. Some Christians died being crucified. Some Christians died being headed, beheaded. Some Christians died as torches for parties for the emperor. But not one of them was out of the control of God. God knew. And he was sovereign. And he was protecting and guiding, even in the midst of great tragedy and difficulty. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Right? It's a call for endurance. The endurance of the saints. Endurance and faith. In the midst of great difficulty, we have to trust God's in control. I'm going to read a couple more verses here and then kind of summarize some of these things. Let's read 11, starting verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon, and it exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Okay, I'm just going to give you a couple examples here of this whole section that again I think it's talking about the emperor specifically but I think it applies more broadly like in modern context and we'll go over that towards the end 
I'll give you just a couple examples. The Caesars, I'm focusing in on Nero. We'll see why at the end because at the end of this section we're going to read about the number of the beast. Um, but Nero, there's lots of these things where it's like supposed signs happen. I'll give you kind of the disturbing nature of them and also the falseness um, you'll see. Okay. This is a pretty graphic section, and so the stories I'm telling, unfortunately, are kind of graphic, but Nero actually killed his own mom, and right after that, he declared a celebration, which is publicly. Everyone basically knew that he did it, and he, he declared a celebration of the, quote, greatest games ever, so um, in kind of Coliseum-type games, where an elephant walked on a tightrope, and if you went, there was little like um, coins, tokens that were scattered throughout the crowds. And if you found one, you would get a gift. Everything from jewels to exotic animals. So that kind of gives you a feel for what's going on here. This, the type of the person this is, right? Um, a very beast-like person. In fact, there's a history of, of uh, not just biblical, but other people calling Nero a beast. Okay, now, now listen to this part. So during these games, to celebrate Nero killing his mom, a lightning bolt struck the table at which Nero was dining, as well as a comet, a very bright comet appearing in the night sky. And both were taken uh, as signs of Nero's great power. So think about that. Fire from heaven, right, uh, in two different ways. But see the like disgusting nature of it? It's like this literally happened at this... Just horrible, okay? And I'm going to go in... There's so many more details I go into, but it's just ugh, it's just disgusting. And it just shows you the difference between Jesus and these other uh, worldly powers that are demanding worship. Like they don't deserve worship, like Jesus, like nothing like Jesus. Um, so that just gives you a feel. We could go on and on, but I'm just going to stop there. And let's get to the the towards the end of the section here that kind of ties it all together. 16 through 18. It also causes all, both small and great both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is a man, and his number is 666. Okay, so this is a really popular section for people to talk about and speculate about in the book of Revelation. I'm going to try and make it real clear um, and hopefully tie it all together. First, we need some cultural context here. When we hear the number of the beast, that seems so weird to us, right? Does this seem weird to anybody? <laughs> does, or does this seem normal? Okay, this was actually a very common play on words in the first century. Okay, I spent way too much time trying to find this picture from Pompeii. Do you remember in the past when I've used Pompeii as, as an example of cultural things? Pompeii was covered in ash by Mount Vesuvius erupting, and it preserved the entire city, basically. And so we have these really strange and pretty amazing peaks into first century life because everything's preserved. Normally, you don't preserve the paintings on a food cart in the street of a first century Roman town. But we have those. Why? Why do we know that they may have been serving chicken and dog and goat? Because we have a picture of a food, we have the food cart, preserved and the paintings of a chicken, a dog, and a goat like in at the city food cart. Things like that that nobody would preserve. Some of the other things that were preserved were graffiti. And I'm tying all this together here. There's several graffitis that reference people's names as numbers. Okay, I'll give you a couple. I spent a really long time trying to find the exact picture on this um, like history website, and I wasn't able to find it. I just wasted <laughs> I won't even tell you how long. But anyways... Just, you just have to trust me on this. Um, uh, uh, I'll give you one. One such inscription, this is graffiti written on a wall in Pompeii, is this. I love her whose number is 545. So the idea of taking people's names and turning them into numbers that are cryptic enough yet specific enough uh, to be understood is really common. It'd be like us today going out and seeing on a tree a heart, and it's like... Uh, AT plus JC, and there's a heart around it with an arrow. If somebody found that 100 years from now, they're like, what, what does this even mean, AT? And, okay, this would not happen, but if there was something, you know, maybe 
it would be something like, to him who understands uh, a, the equation AT plus JC, and there's a heart around it. You know, let him understand, or <laughs> whatever. It's like, to us, it's like, oh, it's obvious. That's somebody's initials, and they love that person, and they, they graffitied it. Um, and that's how common this idea of converting names to numbers was in the first century. It's like, it's like, using, it's like carving someone's initials on a tree. Um, we don't have to explain to one another, well, your initial is actually the first letter of your first name and the first letter of your last name. When you put them together, that's kind of your identity. But it can be cryptic, too, because there could be multiple ATs you know, around or whatever. That's kind of what this idea of names to numbers was in the first century. It was very common, so common that you graffiti it on a wall and people would know what you're talking about. And the reason was because the, the numbers we use today are different from our letters because we actually took the numbers from Arabic. But back then, they used the, let, the same letters they wrote with were also their numbers. And so every name could be converted to a number. Okay? Very, very common. Um, and they actually did this with uh, Nero on some of the things we've already talked about. They would write Nero and matricide, and they would say, see this equation? Both numbers add up. And they were making a play on words, that Nero's name and the word matricide because he, he killed his mother, and they would, it was a kind of a political commentary or whatever. Um, so this is really, really common. It seems weird to us, but it actually wasn't. And the number 666 um, comes out to Neron Caesar, so Nero Caesar. One other important uh, piece of information that kind of helps us know that it's, it's Nero, it's talking about Nero, or just Rome in general, but Nero's kind of the, uh, the head man for it, is that does your Bible, does anyone's Bible have a footnote on a variant there at 666? 616, yep. So I didn't know if um, anybody's Bible. So there's another variant that actually it's argued which one comes first or whatever. Um, there's some old manuscripts that they found. Um, it seems like they scraped off 616 uh, and put 666 um, on. So it, it's still unclear which one's the oldest. So it may actually be 616. So, you know, all the speculation of the number of the beasts, it might be 616, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. But... Um, just like in English, there's a movable new. So, like, you know how we say a, we don't say a apple, we say an apple. But if you write a apple, people will know what you're talking about. Greek has that exact same thing. And it's called a movable new, that in that you can take in, put in, or put out. And that movable new is actually one reason people would say, oh, it can't be Nero Caesar because there would be an N on it, Neron Caesar. That would be the most common way you would write it. Well, that actually turns out to 616. That changes the uh, number to 616. So either way, with if it's 616 or 666, it's both they, both the numbers equal out to Neron Caesar. But I don't think it's specifically talking about Nero, uh, just himself. He is the emperor at the time, but um, it's just talking about these emperor, these other political forces that demand worship that are trying to replace Christ. Okay, one final thought uh, to wrap up all these kind of particular details and then we're going to kind of put it all together. In terms of not being able to buy or sell, um, it's probably re referring to one of two things. Uh, withdrawing from a trade guild, uh, which we talked about when we did the letters, that trade guilds were these group, uh, group of workers that would meet together and kind of be like a union. And But the problem was that a lot of times their meetings included meat sacrifice to idols. So if you wanted to work in a certain industry, you basically had to capitulate to sacrificing meat sacrifice to idols. But it could also be talking about literally sacrificing to an emperor. We have third century emperor demanded certificates of sacrifice to the emperor to participate in commerce and escape prosecution. We actually don't have the record of the... Uh, of the edict from the emperor. We actually just have the pieces of paper that for people to prove it, which is kind of interesting that they have several of those. Um, so we don't have a record of that in the first century, but it's very possible because it happened later on uh, that we just, you know, things get destroyed and we, we only know, you know, pieces. Either one of those is possible. And some Christians were, were actually, we have records of Christians being executed because they 
um, did not sacrifice to the emperor. So all this is to say, let's summarize all this. Here's this political kingdom. God is in control, right? He even prophesied that Rome was going to come about way back in Daniel. And God is allowing his people to go through suffering, but he's encouraging them, don't capitulate, don't worship this false uh, Christ, this false king. Don't worship him. Don't give him your allegiance. Don't follow him. Follow Jesus. And how does this relate to us today? Though it's talking, I think, about the first century here, the application is broad, that we could actually take this and see striking parallels throughout history of other things that were like this, that people who demanded worship instead of Jesus. And I'll give you a couple examples here. But I want you just to take a moment and just notice the parallels here. What's the point of all this? We're kind of going through all this. It's kind of detailed, but I want to kind of, if you, if I lost you, if you're half asleep, try and zone back in here. The point is Jesus, right? All this was to show people that Jesus is greater. Don't, don't compromise. Don't give up your worship or your allegiance or your, your following or any piece of what you're supposed to be giving to Christ, don't give it to someone else who's saying that they really deserve it. The real lamb died in weakness and was raised by God's power. The fake lamb pretends to have recovered from a mortal wound. You see the connection there of Nero, this whole false Nero, and the real Jesus? Christ is uniting a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation through faith in him that will never end. The Antichrist is uniting people from many tribe, tongues, people, and nations by the sword. Uh, But their kingdom will only last a short time, 42 months symbolically, just a period of fixed time that's destined to fail. Christ's servants will be sealed with God's name written on their foreheads. uh, Revelation 14.1 But the beast... Uh, is going to mark people with uh, his false uh, seal using the threat of not being able to buy or sell. We'll talk more about that because that's it comes up in 14. I won't go into all that right here on the, in terms of why does it say mark on the hand and the forehead. We'll talk about that later, just for sake of time. Antichrist followers will worship the beast, and Christ followers will worship him. This is a universal message, even though it seems like, okay, well, all this really specific details about the first century, what does that have to do with me? Rulers and beasts want and demand worship and exercise authority and power. And we have to resist that and worship and follow him who is truly worthy. No matter what happens in your life where somebody else is demanding something that's against what Christ said, you've got to follow Jesus. And that's that's the the call here. The command in this section is, this is the call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Endure and trust God. Endure and trust God. Be faithful to Him. Obey Him. And this is actually a really, really, really big deal. And I'll give you a couple examples. We have to be prepared to suffer for resisting authority if our authority is rightly placed in Christ. We can call out false kingdoms because there's a true kingdom. But this false kingdom is not going to go down without a fight and means their Christians will be persecuted. But what do we remember from this section? Things we already talked about, just a reminder. God is still in control. Even when there's these false beasts, false uh, Christ, people demanding worship that don't deserve it, God is still in control. They're, they're rebelling against God, but... They're only allowed to do this because God is allowing them. God is still in control. We must remember who we're following. Who are we following? Jesus. We're not following anyone else. They may promise us money, success, peace, but we follow Jesus. Suffering is a part of a fallen world. We don't want to be surprised. If anyone is to be taken captive, captivity, he He goes. And this does not mean that things are out of control. This is really important. When suffering comes into your life, do you begin to feel like things are out of control? Because suffering's in my life, surely something's out of control. Surely God's not in control. 
That's not true. God can still be in control and there be great suffering. Why? Because the suffering is only for a short time. The suffering is just going to last a short time. God's promised us that. Whatever type of suffering you're going through, it could be things like this, like persecution. It could be health things. It could be other things, uh, relational things. It could be job things. But we know that all those things one day, when Jesus comes back, he's going to put them all right. Suffering does not mean your life's out of control, even though that's kind of our first impulse, isn't it? God's still in control. And here's the final thing I want to really hammer home and then wrap all this up. Hopefully you're still with me because this is the better part. Maybe I should put the best part at the beginning. (laughs) Following God in the basic things is a really, really big deal. If you just endure and you have faith in Christ and you do what you know is right, that is a really, really big deal. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of whether it's economic or political or relational, whatever it is, if you just keep on doing what you know God wants you to do, that is a really, really, really big deal. And there's so many examples throughout history that I had to kind of narrow it down. So I want you to, I'm going to give you, I'll give you four examples. The first example was this first century of Nero. Okay, I gave you, we got a ton of examples there. Here's the second, some second examples. I want you to notice kind of how this, some of these stories could really fit into Revelation 13. Okay, I'm going to give you a sad story. I'm kind of picking on some people. I'm hoping that if they were here or whenever we meet them in heaven, you know, I'm, I'm hoping, I, I think they're Christians, they would say like, yeah, if, if I made a mistake, you feel free to use me as an, a negative example if that will help people follow Jesus. So I'm going to give one from Whitfield. Overall, I'm really encouraged with Whitfield, but he really, I'm going to give you maybe his worst, um, worst thing he ever did, which is, Kind of not fair to him, but I'm hoping that it helps you follow Jesus. And I, I'm i thinking, I'm hoping that he would be even happy to be the negative example if it helps people to follow Jesus. Because overall, Whitfield, I'm really encouraged by, but I'm going to give you a really bad example from Whitfield. Okay, George Whitfield, if you don't know who he is, um, he traveled around preaching in America and in England uh, around the time of the American Revolution. That's kind of the period we're in. Um, just incredibly famous, like no celebrity pastor today. Like 100,000 people would come out and people would hear that he's in town and they would ride for miles to hear him. People offered him great sums of money just to be like, just be at this church and we'll give you exorbitant amounts of money just to stay here for six months out of the year. So he's super, super famous and a lot of people did seem like they were converted. But here's a problem. Here's basically the worst thing he ever did. He started this orphanage in America which that doesn't sound bad. You want to take care of orphans. He started in Georgia. But then he got into some financial trouble. And so he's got this big plantation, basically, thing where he's got all these orphans, but he doesn't have enough money to care for them. So two guys come to him. I'm going to uh, paraphrase some of this, but I'll read parts of it. And they come up with a solution. Here's the solution. Let's buy human beings as slaves, and we'll have those people work, and that will pay for the orphanage. They, they give this plan to Whitfield. In the face of this situation, these two men proposed to set in motion a plan that they were sure would meet Whitfield's needs. Since slavery was not allowed in Georgia, they suggested the purchase of a plantation in South Carolina, where, they said, by the use of slave labor, a sufficient income for the orphan house could be granted. They therewith raised much of the purchase price, and Whitfield wrote, God has put it into the hearts of my South Carolina friends to contribute liberally towards purchasing a plantation and slaves in this providence, which I propose to devote to the support of Bethesda, which was the name, Bethesda was the name he gave to this orphanage. Accordingly, in March uh, in March of 1747, the plantation was purchased and Whitfield named it Providence, which is actually really sad. Um, Thus, the man of God became the owner of slaves. To his credit, he intended they'd be treated with kindness and brought under the sound gospel. And we may be sure that many a slave would have rejoiced to be able to move from the average plantation to, quote, providence. Nevertheless, uh, this is the author's thoughts. In this action, Whitfield was making himself a partner in the practice of slavery with all its inhumanity inherent therein. Well, it gets a little bit worse than that. Okay, so that's actually really bad. You can kind of see this whole, like, mark of the beast and, like, uh, if you're short for money, compromise, 
right? Oh, uh, if you if you if you don't compromise, you're not going to have enough money. That's kind of what was going on in the first century, right? If you don't compromise and be part of these trade guilds that sacrifice idols, you're not going to have enough work. You're not going to have enough money. You're not going to be able to feed your family. If you don't sacrifice the emperor, you're not going to be able to buy and sell. You're not going to have enough money. Just compromise. Just compromise. Just in a little thing. And that's exactly what Whitfield did. But it actually gets worse. Um, I'm just going to summarize this. Um, basically, what ended up happening is Whitfield ended up writing to the trustees of Georgia. Georgia wasn't a state yet. And basically urging them, please let slaves in Georgia. Which is actually really sad. <laughs> so it's not only did he buy slaves, he influenced this whole territory, eventually the state of Georgia, to have slaves. It's like, it's horrible. You know, it's like, yes, did he compromise in this one area t- for, quote-unquote, a good reason? Sure. But how many slaves in Georgia suffered over the next 100 years? A lot. <laughs> and he contributed to that. So what is, what's the point of all this story? It's really, really, really a big deal when you just say, God, I'm just going to do what you want me to do, and I'm going to trust you with whatever the outcome is. My short on funds, you're going to provide. Is this going to cost me this or that? I'm just going to trust you. Because you don't know what's going to happen, right? And Whitfield, here's this one area that really he did damage to the, to the kingdom and to these, you know, American history. He was really a negative force here. I'll give you another example. This is a later one. You can kind of see this whole thing of a beast isn't just one thing that happens one time. There's these, there's these draws to compromise all over the place. And it should make you feel that your life is significant. Just being a person that just says, I'm going to follow Jesus where I'm at, what God wants me to do, no matter the consequences, that's a really big deal. You don't know how that's going to affect things down the road. That's a, it's a really, really important I'll give you another example. This one's from World War II. Okay, just to give you some background, Hitler um, and his party was the Nazi party, and they had all these plans, and one of the big plans was basically to eradicate people that were unworthy. And we think of Jews as part of it, but actually, even before Jews, they started killing um, people that were disabled, uh, long before they started killing Jews. And... I'll give you a little quote here. The terms um, increasingly used to describe these people with disabilities were, quote, useless eaters and, quote, life unworthy of life. And when the war came in 1939, their extermination would begin in earnest. From, uh, this is a biography of Bonhoeffer, so it's going to kind of talk about what he thought about from Bethel, Bonhoeffer wrote to his grandmother, It is sheer madness, as some believe today, that the sick can or ought to be legally eliminated. It is virtually the same as building the Tower of Babel and is bound to avenge itself. Toward the end of the decade, the Nazis increased pressure on places like Bethel. Uh, this is this hospital thing. Um, and when the war began, they demanded such places give up their patients for, quote, mercy killings. Okay. This seems so obvious, right? It seems like here, what does God want us to do? God wants us to love people, not kill people, right? But the amount of compromise that went on is crazy. It's just like with Whitfield and the slaves. It's like, don't compromise here. It just seems obvious. Don't compromise. Uh, But many people did. In fact, doesn't this, tell me this does not sound like the beast. Okay. In recognition, this this is about Hitler. In recognition that only those who may hold office in the church who are must be unswer- unswervingly loyal to the Führer. Um, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. Führer. Führer. It means leader, right? It's talking about Hitler. They, uh, I'll put Hitler's name in there. Um, in recognition that only those may hold office in the church who are unswervingly loyal to Hitler, the leader of the country, and the people of the Reich, it is hereby decreed anyone who is called to the spiritual office is to, to affirm his loyal duty with the following oath. Okay, Hitler demanded this following oath from everyone who was a pastor. This is crazy. <laughs> I swear that I will be faithful and obedient to Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer of the German Reich and people, and that I will conscientiously observe the laws and carry out the duties of my office, so help me God. Is that crazy or what? <laughs> the crazier part is that people did that. Like... <laughs> 
Pastors did that. It's like, it's crazy. But it's a big warning to us. Like, we have to set our mind, like, I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to just trust Jesus. And no matter what happens, I'm going to trust him. It, it actually, in this case, it comes back to money again. The useless eaters. We need the money and we need the beds for the soldiers in the war. It's like, it's crazy. I'll give you one example. This guy, again, he started out bad, but he ends up repenting. Um, there's a guy named Niemöller, uh, who was a pastor, and he, did, he supported the Nazis at first, and he just kept making excuses for them. And eventually he's arrested, and you've probably heard this quote from Niemöller later on. He's arrested and thrown in prison, and you've, this is a famous quote where he says, first they came for the communists, and I said nothing, and then they came for the Jews, and I said nothing, and then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. I think I'm missing one group in there. Have you heard this quote? Okay. Um, I should have looked it up because so, I figured you all uh, had heard this. It's a famous quote from uh, World War II, and it's a pastor named Niemöller who started out supporting the Nazis, basically making excuses, had some concerns, but basically caved. And eventually, he didn't speak up, he didn't speak up, and then he was arrested um, later on. And it's just a good reminder to us. We do not want to compromise with the beast. <laughs> we don't want to give the beast our worship that's due to God. And so... We could go on and on and multiply examples, but we've gone kind of long, and this has been kind of a detailed um, thing, so I, there's only there's just so much we can listen to at once and take it all in. The thing I want you to really remember is there's things all over the place where the dragon is trying to influence a beast to demand from us obedience and worship that only belongs to God. And it happens all the time. It's amazing how often it really does come back to money. I mean, think about abortion, the abortion industry. What's really driving it? I think it's like 88% or something like that of abortions are um, because they're not financially, the mom's not financially able to take care or feels like it will be a financial burden. You know, human sacrifice. Human sacrifice for the sake of money. Um, There's so many things like that. The good news is, just like with Whitfield, just like with Neomolar, and even I, there's many, many people that have had abortions who can find forgiveness and healing in Jesus. Right? There's always this one true King of Kings there waiting to what? To wash us, to cleanse us, to change us, and to bring us into a kingdom where all this stuff doesn't happen, where he's going to put all, an end to all this. There's not going to be any more slaves. <laughs> there's not going to be any more abortions. There's not going to be any more killing of mercy killings. Everything's going to be just and right. And we can be thankful that Jesus is the King of Kings. He knows, and he's got a plan to put it all, to put an end to all of it. But he's waiting. Why? He's giving time to repent. There's still people, there's still people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are still living under the kingdom of the beast, of the dragon, who are living in slavery and bondage to sin and are yet to, be, yet to repent and be pulled out. And we can just be thankful. We can be thankful that, one, Jesus is going to come again, and we can pray for that. Come, Lord Jesus, put everything right. But we can also be thankful that he has a plan to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that there's people today that aren't worshiping him that in eternity will be because he's going to save them. And so is a call for us for endurance and faith. There's going to be times when you're, you're tempted to compromise, and I'm tempted to compromise, and we just say, no, I'm going to trust the Lord. And there might be threats, and there might be coercion, and we just say, no, I've got to do what I know is right. And that's a really big deal. Um, It's a really big deal just to be there, just to say, I'm trusting the Lord. Jesus is my king, and I'm going to obey him no matter what. All right. Any questions or comments before before we close? Thanks for bearing with me. There's a lot there. Good thing I split up into two sermons. (laughs) Two long ones, so. Questions, comments, clarifications? Okay, that's a great question. Um, let's see. I think I had it in my notes that he died in 68, but let me just look look at it. There, uh, while I'm looking for that, I'll tell you this. Um, near, uh, the date of Revelation is debated. And... To be honest, I really don't know where I stand on it. 
Um, there's basically two big opinions, an early date and a late date. Uh, the early date would be around the time of Nero. Uh, I don't know, that's, is that right? No, the early date is before the temple was destroyed, before the destruction of the temple. And the, right, 70 AD, uh, and that might be, yeah, that sounds right. So that would be around the time of Nero, and then the late date would be after the destruction of the temple. Um, let me see. Can't talk and look at the same time. I think Nero died in 68. Okay. I don't see it in my notes here. It's around here somewhere. But, yeah, I think Nero died in 68. So that was before the destruction of the temple. Um, one other thing, I sometimes I leave things out. Just I don't know how much to include. There's already so much. One other common interpretation of 666, uh, it's also the earliest. Um, the first person that ever wrote about, I'm getting to your question. Um, the first person that ever wrote uh, anything that we have about this idea of the 666, uh, it was not Polycarp. Uh, it was two after Polycarp. So Polycarp, and then there's a guy who Polycarp trained, and then there's a guy who he trained, and I'm trying to remember his name. Top of my head, I think it's Irenaeus. And he's the first one in church history that we have that wrote about this idea of the 666. And he gave two possible interpretations, which is kind of interesting because it's maybe three generations after John. John, Polycarp. I don't know if it was Irenaeus. Was that one or the next one? But anyways, it was very soon after, and he didn't know what it meant specifically. He said it either means Rome or Nero specifically. And there's actually two ways. I think it's something in Latin that means Rome, like Latinus or something like that. Um, so that's kind of interesting. All that is to say, I think I think the whole thing is talking about Rome in general. Uh, either way, like if Nero, if it is Nero specifically, he's just an example of the Roman situation. You kind of see that even in the story because it's saying the beast, um, and then that there comes another beast, and it makes people worship the first beast. It sounds very much like the emperors who came after and made them worship the emperor who just died and all that. So the reason I bring all that up is in terms of the date. I don't think it really matters too much early or late date because I think it's talking in general. It's like, this is talking about the Roman Empire. And so if, it, if it's earlier, uh, it could be Nero. And if it's later, I think they say it's Domitian. Uh, and they did a lot of the same things, which is kind of the reason that people have a debate is they persecuted the Christians. And it's like all these same things apply to both of them. So for me, I think it's just talking about that in general, right? Like if they keep doing these same things over and over, then we can apply it to both. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, we could do a whole thing just on the date, like disagreements on the date, but the interpretation ends up being very much the same. I feel like I could have given this exact same sermon and just said Domitian and give, gave examples from his time, um, and it would have ended up being almost exactly the same. It would be different in its specific examples, but in the end it ends up the same. So honestly, for me, I don't really have like a, oh, I, I think it was the early writing or the late because you kind of end up in the same place um, the way I understand it. So, yeah. I don't know if that answers it. <laughs> it basically is a non-answer, but um, Nero or Domitian. Time of Nero, time of Domitian would be the short answer. Anything else? I'll try not to be long-winded. <laughs> Yeah, very sad. All right. Well, Tim, are you up for seeing one more song and then we'll be dismissed? And if you want to uh, stay for the meal, we've got the meal. We just need to, do you have what it is? I'll Thanks so much for... Um, Thanks so much for bearing with me, and I hope that you got something helpful from that, even though it was kind of long there.